Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out Toronto today. Hope you had a great weekend. We got a lot to recap, including going all the way back, winding those clocks back to the provincial election and some harsh criticism from uh, a website on the Ontario Liberal Party. But I agree with it, and we'll play you some of that. Also give you my perspective on Canada's men's soccer team canceling a friendly match against Panama. And this is by no means the end of the drama. It may just be the beginning of it, as at loggerheads are Canada soccer and the men's national players. It probably puts head coach John Herdman right in the middle as well. So, so much of that. It's also the one-year anniversary of the awful, horrific terrorist attack in London, Ontario that ripped apart uh, not just the Muslim community, not just a Muslim family, but the entire city of London, Ontario for all of last summer. It's the one-year anniversary of that attack today, and we address it in kind. It's Toronto Today. Thank you very much for being with us, and it starts now. Uh, this is my last full week. Not ever. <laughs> Let's see how it goes. Um, but I'm considering uh, some time off next week. Um, I thought about that. I'm like, I want to work through the provincial election. I want to work through the the fallout of the provincial election. Then the provincial election ends. And there's so much stuff this week to get into. Um, I didn't know we were going to have a Canada soccer controversy. I didn't know Prime Minister Trudeau was going to be in uh, London yesterday, which he was. We'll delve into that. And we got a big-time uh, confidence vote, in essence, non-confidence vote, in uh, Great Britain for Boris Johnson. We'll get to all that, all that stuff as the morning continues. I'm watching television on Friday trying to recover from the uh, provincial election. Many of us were. Maybe you stayed up late um, and were watching with friends. But everybody had an opinion about how it happened and why it happened, right? The old-time journalism school questions, I call them how, why, when. And if you don't hit those in interviews, you you were kind of missing out a little bit. So um, two things I saw that were notable. One is the fact that, obviously, the NDP and liberals need a new direction, need to know where to go. Now, the liberals provincially, uh, you could maybe, maybe see this coming to some extent. Stephen Del Duca was going to have trouble winning his riding. Stephen Del Duca was going to have trouble becoming the opposition party leader. Okay, the NDP had a bit of a fortress. It's hard to come back from what at forty to seven. That's quite a score score line going into the election. And as it was, got a little bit closer, but more because the NDP bled away nine seats and the Liberals gained one. Nobody had that on their bingo card. Of all the predictions, of all the predictions people made going into Thursday night. Nobody had the liberals not regaining party status. Nobody had the liberals in single digit status. Um, that's it. That's all. Re, you know, like reset the clocks. Figure out why it's not working. You didn't just have and elections aren't sporting events. The the ball just didn't bounce the wrong way. The, the you didn't get uh, what's it called in hockey puck luck. You didn't have bad puck luck. That didn't feel like there was a uh, you know an iron rim around the basket in an NBA Finals game, although Boston felt that way in the second half last night. So what was it? What went so wrong? And what should they be looking for next? And I think about that most of Friday. I watched a lot of analysis about it. And uh, and then I watch Real Time with Bill Maher, which I often do. And I say this all the time. I don't always agree with Bill Maher. I don't always agree with his guests. But I find they stimulate me, they invigorate me, they interest me. That it'll they'll divide me and my opinions in half. I'll say this all the time. What I think we look for on this show is information, not affirmation. And we got too much tribalism. People want to cheer for the people that they think best encapsulate who they are specifically. And that's fine. 
That's fine. That's good. You like what you like. You like who you like. And you are the political animal that you choose to be. But I like being challenged a little bit. And I've I've challenged myself a ton more in the last couple of years. So Bill Maher's sitting there with Michael Schellenberger. And if you haven't heard of him, he's going to run for governor. He's a registered independent. But what I like is neither side's extremes, the right or the left, can stand the guy. Okay, he wrote a book called San Francisco, Why Progressives Ruin Cities. You can imagine right away people that are fiercely liberal, giant L on their chest. Not just not I'm not talking about the liberal party of Canada, but who are fiercely liberal. Like what? How dare he? We're ruining cities. Um, Well, we're talking about issues in cities like homelessness, like poverty, like figuring out how to best uh, how to best navigate issue tricky issues of immigration i say this all the time you don't often come to a backyard barbecue somebody says you know i got some really interesting opinions on immigration gather around you're not you're expecting something bad to happen in the next three minutes not something good but he writes this book um and he appears with douglas murray who really pushes uh that side of of the uh of the narrative in that and he wrote a book called war on the west how to prevail in the age of unreason And he says, we don't talk about the good things we do. We don't talk about the fact, and this is true when you look it up, that we we have evolved so much as a society from 15, 20 years ago. I often document Barack Obama was against gay marriage. Men marrying? No, Barack Obama was adamantly against that when he ran for the Democratic nomination and really for the first couple years of his presidency. And then somehow... I, I don't know, the Enlightenment fairies land on his shoulder and he sees it. I mean, you and I might have been more for, yeah, um, let dudes get married and give them the same rights as everybody else. Love who you want to love. I mean, I don't know how long I've been that way and how long I've grown up in a house that was that way, but it's a lot longer than 2008. So Schellenberger on the show, I'm thinking, who do the liberals need here? If they're going to sit in that sort of fleshy middle and try and attract people that don't want to go full on conservative Doug Ford, even though I think we can distinguish Doug Ford ran a great campaign and separated also himself. That's not gotten talked about all weekend long, separated himself from some of what the federal conservatives, the uh, CPC are believed to be perceived to be and actually are. So Doug Ford ran a great campaign and I'm watching Schellenberg explain who he is. And Bill Maher says, who are you? Who are you politically? What type of politician are you? And he answered this And uh, my heart started to flutter. Here's what he said. I'm a liberal in my compassion for the vulnerable. I'm a libertarian in my passion for freedom. And I'm a conservative in that I believe you need civilization to protect both of them. That's it. That's it. Some conservative principles. And again, some people say, talk to the hand, not interested. If you tell some people who probably back conservative politicians more often than not, and you say, well, I've got some liberal principles. Where are you going? Come on. I thought we were meeting for lunch. They'll do that to you. And then there's the libertarian factor, which I think has hit a lot of us in the last two years. And I told you from November and December on, once we realized, once once the conversation about COVID got reframed about Omicron, and once we realized in December, um, this is probably where it's at, and it may not get any better than this. This may be also the last major crisis when it comes to COVID in our own household, what we're worried about, the more vulnerable people in our lives, all that stuff. Once we realized that, I started hearing a real groundswell of people saying, just leave my household alone. I know what I'm doing. We're two years into this. 
I want to call my own shots. Oh my gosh, I want to call my own shots. I want to go where I want to go, do what I want to do, and I'm not going to turn around and point the finger of blame later on saying, you didn't protect me enough. You didn't keep me safe. I'm just going to do what I do and, and forge on. Schellenberger said this as well about a major issue, and i got to contrast this with a potential Ontario Liberal leadership candidate, and I was kind of crestfallen. It'd probably been a long night, um, but I'm, I'm going to play you this audio, and you'll see the contrast right away. This is also Michael Schellenberger on Real Time with Bill Maher talking about an issue we were dealing with all last summer in Toronto, homeless encampments. What do you do? What's the right approach? I think we know what the wrong approaches are and some of how we saw the police be really aggressive um, in moving encampments out was a problem last summer. We all felt that. I think we all saw the logic of why that was a problem in our heads and hearts. Here's what he said on fixing homelessness. Well, you know, I'm inspired by what they've done in Europe. You go to Amsterdam, you go to other parts of Europe, they don't have open-air drug scenes, they don't have homeless encampments. Between 2020 and 2021, three times more homeless people died in Los Angeles than in New York City, even though there's 14,000 fewer homeless people. Why? Because in New York, they shelter 96% of the homeless. Less than a third of the homeless are sheltered in L.A. It's not safe for them. Nearly 100% of the women I interview in homeless encampments have been sexually assaulted multiple times. They're being killed. They're being sexually assaulted. They're being hit by cars. This is absolutely, we just have to, you have to shut down the, the homeless encampments. We've got to get people the rehab, the psychiatric care that they need. It's not fair to them. It's not fair to us. Okay. But and I'm watching this guy going, we need politicians like him who aren't, who are fearless about saying things like that and also are willing to push forward knowing that they're going to be misunderstood by some until you actually hear them out. And both Douglas Murray and Schellenberger Friday night noted something that I think we could have a logical conversation about this in Toronto, in that if you just play this hands off, if you just say, ah, let's let those tents set up. I mean, it's outside. They're afraid to go in. The weather's better now. And then you normalize it. And homeless, being homeless is not normal. Mentally ill people walking around the street is not normal. I want to help them not normalize it, which is better for them, normalizing it or actually helping them. Should we make some judgments and say, this isn't right. We want to do better by you or just say, hey, give him or her his freedom. Let, let's not judge. Let's not be morally harsh on this. So then I see Mitzi Hunter on CBC's Power and Politics on Friday night, and I saw her before this. And I'm like, I'm OK. I really like Mitzi Hunter. So this may have not been her best 30 seconds of television ever. She's usually available for interviews, often on The Oakley Show. But I was really, I was disconsolate seeing, oh, my gosh, is this the next potential leader of the Ontario Liberal Party? She can't mean what she says here. You know, I know that Stephen, he he definitely tried his best. Uh, he was out there every day. And, um, you know, this didn't break the way that he would have hoped for, that we hoped for, for our party. But, you know, a, a million plus people did vote for us. We, we did receive 24% of the popular vote. No, 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 no. Here's, I, I got 20 seconds. We're not connecting. We need to connect better. We need to absolutely look inside ourselves as the Ontario Liberal Party, figure out what we're doing right, because we do believe we are doing some things right. You can mention that the, that increased voter response, but you look at this as a complete and utter disappointment. We're devastated. In a million years, we didn't think we wouldn't be Ontario party leader status, and we need to look at every single thing and have conversations about it. Bingo. That's what you do. That's what a politician does. 
I want more from Mincy Hunter in the months to come if she's going to be considering running for the Ontario Liberal Party leadership. Canadian musician, former uh, lead singer of Headley, Jacob Hogard, has been convicted, found guilty of raping a young woman in 2016, but not guilty of raping a 16-year-old fan and sexually touching her when she was 15. It took six days of deliberations to get there, a lot of back and forth. The jury came back, said we're deadlocked. We can't get to a unanimous verdict, which you need on some of these counts. The judge says you got to keep going. Um, so how did all this transpire and where do we go now? And there's an additional charge up in Kirkland Lake, no less, um, of, uh, of, a, of a female that's got a similar anecdotal story uh, and came forward. And there is a uh, pending charge that Jacob Hogard will have to answer to. Uh, let's bring on Andrew Fergarelli uh, to join us, criminal lawyer who also lectures in criminal procedure in the Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto. Andrew, it is great to have you on Toronto today. Thanks for getting up early for our audience. My pleasure, Greg. Good to talk to you. It's great to have you on. Why um, the, the jury clearly did the jury clearly believe one of the complainants more than the other? Is that the most obvious thing a a, a, a layman like me about the legal process could say? I think in a way you could say that. I think the the more accurate way to say it is they believed uh, the Ottawa complainant beyond a reasonable doubt and that they had some doubt about uh, the Toronto complainant. And, you know, that that's what our system is. It's it, the, the standard never changes in a criminal case. It's proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And it may be that the jurors did believe her to an extent, but they're they're were issues with her story. There were inconsistencies that were big enough that they just couldn't get around them uh, and found that it wouldn't be safe to convict on that set of charges. Uh, whereas with the Ottawa complainant, they were clearly satisfied that whatever inconsistencies were there weren't enough to to get around the core of her story and 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 found him guilty on that charge. When, Andrew, when the jury takes this long, what do you say in your own mind uh, about it? Are you saying that's that's good news for the defendant or that's bad news that they're weighing a lot? Usually we think we think constantly the jury comes back quickly. That's really bad news for the accused. Yeah, I think that's a fair rule of thumb. Um, I think in, in some cases there's there's a lot of evidence. And if they're coming back quickly, it's because they've very quickly decided that there's no way around all that evidence and it's clear what happened. Um, I think here uh, you had a case where it was likely that the jury was in two separate camps. There were, there were probably some holdouts, especially with respect to the Toronto evidence uh, or the Toronto complainant, excuse me, because they came back with that early question saying we're deadlocked on some counts. Um, and that told me that what was most likely is they had probably settled the Ottawa case uh, and had moved to Toronto. Now, mm -hmm. sometimes things change in those jury rooms. Uh, sometimes what they thought were settled all of a sudden becomes unsettled and they come back to it. You don't really get to know what the dynamics are with each particular jury, because in our country, uh, we've made it an offense for jurors to to talk about their deliberations afterwards. So I, I think the most likely thing that happened was they spent the most time on the Toronto complainant um, and, and were really um, having to struggle with that and, and, and took their time to work through it. Andrew Fergarelli uh, is our guest, a criminal lawyer who uh, lectures in criminal procedure at U of T in the Faculty of Law. Saying this to a, a colleague yesterday, if I were, if I deemed myself to have been uh, assaulted, um, I'd want my own trial. And I, th I remember thinking this during the Gameshi scenario where 
it, it may get a little cloudy for the jury. That was three different complainants, but you go through the same set of, of processes. So it's tricky, right? It, 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 I think that's, a, that's sort of probably the, uh, the, the defense uh, attorneys are going to cloud the procedure somewhat by saying this person can't keep their story straight. Now, in the Gameshi scenario, that did happen multiple times. And there were a couple examples of, of perjury where someone said, well, I didn't contact him after the, the alleged assault took place. The, the, the defense, um, Marie Hannon, was able to prove that they did. Is is that unique? Is, is there a process that that could get somebody their own trial as opposed to being paired up with somebody, as it were? So the de- the decision to have joint trials is the crowns, and mm-hmm. and actually it's the crown who probably wants more complainants there, because the presumption is um, you you have trials together uh, because it saves court resources, it saves time. Um, and if there's a link between the charges, uh, an, an evidentiary link, then you absolutely want to have them together. And it's more often than not the defense that are saying, whoa, 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 let's do them one at a time. Um, and, and here, the Crown absolutely wanted both of these complainants together because they brought a motion called a similar fact motion, which allowed the jury to say, look, if I believe one of these complainants and I find uh, that Mr. Hogard uh, sexually assaulted this complainant, I can use that as evidence to determine the other one. Right. Ordinarily, it, it's separate. You have to consider each count separately. But here, the Crown won a motion to allow the jury to reason across the counts that way. And that can be very powerful evidence uh, uh, for a Crown case. You'll remember, Greg, a case from a few years ago about the anesthesiologist in Toronto who was uh, convicted of multiple sexual assaults of women on the operating table. And there you had like a dozen uh, complainants come forward in the same trial. And that motion was there. There was the Mm -hmm. cross count motion there to allow uh, the judge, the trial judge, there wasn't a jury in that case, to reason across the count, say, listen, I find complainants one, two, and three to be credible. I believe their story. And then it starts to snowball from there. And so the Crown gets an advantage in those cases. Uh, They had that advantage here. This was their call. um, And it's the call the Crown almost invariably is going to make. Here's the struggle. And I I think it's important for context for our audience. And you know this extremely well. I know this a little bit, at least I believe it, in that where the Crown ends up being at a bit of a disadvantage is, is they can't really... They can't really prep a complainant the way, say, a defense lawyer can prep a defendant. The Crown doesn't represent the complainant. It's representing the public in, in this particular case. So they don't have a clue how witnesses will you know, perform and either strengthen or weaken a prosecution. They really don't know what they're going to get on the witness stand till the witnesses get up there, do they? That's right. Uh, the, the Crown has a very special place in, in our justice system in the sense that um, they're expected to fully and forcefully uh, set out their position, but they don't have a solicitor-client relationship with a complainant or with any witness. Only the accused gets that in a criminal trial unless uh, a complainant goes and hires their own lawyer. But then again, the Crown doesn't get to be part of those negotiate, uh, part of that relationship, part of that preparation that, that a complainant may have if they hire their own lawyer, which happened in the Gomeshi case. You had uh, at least one of the complainants there hired a lawyer, um, but the Crown wasn't able to be part of those preparations. That's that's how our system works. Um, if a Crown does meet with a complainant, 
They've got to have somebody present to document the, the meeting because if any new information comes out at that meeting, the defense is entitled to know about it. Um, I got about a minute here. The sentencing and the appeal, what could that process look like? And I'd ask if you think the sentencing, whether surreptitiously or otherwise, the fact that there is another complainant and another sexual assault charge has been filed against Hogard, the judge isn't sequestered. So she knows that that's the case. Does that... You, you don't want it to, but does human nature factor into what the sentencing could be um, for this this celebrity? You really hope it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, he's not guilty of that at, at this time. The, the trial's still pending. By law, pending charges cannot form any part of the sentencing decision. So you really hope that the trial judge in this case is not going to take that into account. Um, and, and, you know, judges are, are expected to be able to to disabuse their minds of that kind of extraneous information that's held to not really um, uh, have a bearing on what the sentence Mm. should be. But the sentencing is going to take place here over the next uh, few weeks or couple of months, however long it takes for the the, the materials and documents that, that happen in a sentencing hearing to be put together. And then after that, I have no doubt that, uh, that Mr. Hogard's going to appeal. Mm-hmm. Um, and that process is probably going to take eight to 12 months uh, before it actually gets heard orally at the Ontario Court of Appeal. Yeah, these things take a lot longer than we, uh, than we first perceive um, when we're talking about even if a sentencing hearing goes later this summer, which is the plan, like you said, we're, we're deep into 23, maybe early 24 uh, before there's, uh, there's finality. Uh, Andrew Fergirelli, thank you very much for coming on the show. I hope we can do this again. Really strong. Thanks for bringing it for our audience. My pleasure, Greg. Take care. It was great to have you on. Uh, Andrew Fergirelli joining us. A lighter few minutes here. A lighter few minutes. Um, Today marks the week beginning of the RBC Canadian Open up at St. George's Golf Club. And uh, Gord Rennie, Dave Bradley, Jason Chapman. We could make quite a quite a foursome. I played yesterday. I know. I know you, the, Dave. You won't play unless it's with famous uh, Canadian rappers. Why? Well, yeah. I, do you true. want me to ask you to play? Do I need to invite? Do you need an invite? Have your people talk to my people. We yeah, can do I'd that. love to play golf. Yeah, absolutely. What people don't understand about us, and Gord, you can relate, is people think, oh, you you work early in the morning. You got all day for golf. Yeah. yeah. By about the 15th hole? <laughs> oh, my God. 15. You're dragging. The fifth hole. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. Because you've been up since 345, yeah. earlier than 345 in Dave's case. Yeah. And exactly. yours, to some extent, Gord. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Yeah, I don't want to compare alarm clocks, <laughs> especially after I didn't use one on Friday. But we've got a quiz on the RBC Canadian. <laughs> Stop that laughing. Oh. Um, the RBC Canadian Open. And we thought this is master's music, but it just reminds me of golf. And it'll probably get me to talk a little more mellow, like Jim Nance kind of. I don't know how he does that. He, he'll have like a big call in like an AFC championship game with Tony Romo. And Tony be like, oh, Jim, I think this will be a pass here. And Jim Nance can get fired up and then. Really soft yeah. in moments like this. That, that's it's, a skill to, to be a golf announcer because you're not really announcing. You're just sort of like, I don't you, know, delivering. And you announce, uh, you know, you like your dream would be to probably call an Indy 500 or an F1 race. Oh, yeah, for sure. Dave, and and that, that you're like always on the pin right there. You would absolutely, absolutely do that. Okay. Um, I'll try to talk normally. So here's our quiz. A Canadian has not won the RBC Canadian Open since 1954. This is simple, true or false. Has a Canadian won it since 1954? Gord, let's start with you. True or false? I think it's true. It's true that a Canadian has not won the RBC Canadian Open. Not won. Jason Chapman, you want to take a run at this? Got to be false. Got to be false. Got to be false. There's uh, many more Canadian players. Got to be false. Okay, Dave, Um, break the tie here. 
I'm gonna say true. No, no, I'm gonna say false. Actually, oh, I'm see how I didn't, so you've given I didn't it some complete thought. my my yeah. So I'm gonna say false. No, it hasn't happened since 1954. Really? I thought Mike Weir I, won it, didn't he? When he was all when he was winning all of these really the close oh, a couple yeah. times, a couple times. Uh, that gentleman's name is Pat Fletcher, uh, who won in 1954. Uh, Pat was from uh, and he won at his home course in Point Grey, in beautiful Vancouver, British hmm. Columbia. Why do we always say the names of people's hometowns when they're on TV? You know, like Mike Weir from Brights Grove, Ontario. Why do we do this with golf? We say your leader in newscasts and sportscasts. Yeah. What if I don't want that guy to win? It's not my leader. I didn't pick him. I, I got so-and-so in the pool. Your champion at the French <laughs> Open's Rafa Nadal. We don't do no. that. He's not yeah. my guy. Especially, whatever. Uh, only one man has won. Now, I don't think this is a thing. Jason, this is not a thing. The Triple Crown... Of the U.S. Open, the Open Championship, and the Canadian Open. Only one man's won no, it. Nobody ever references this. It's not a thing. There's thing. the four majors. That's all people. That's right. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Man. This so, is very uh, Canadian-centric, insecurity stuff. And if Mexico's not included in that, it's definitely not the Triple Crown. <laughs> well, I, Mike Weir may have won seven Mexican Opens. We just don't know. <laughs> Only one man's won the quote-unquote Triple Crown. The U.S. Open, the Open Championship, and the Canadian Open. That man is Tom Watson. Jack Nicholas, the shark, Greg Norman, or Tiger Woods? Who is that man, Jason? Nicholas. Dave? Tiger Woods. Gord? It is Tiger Woods. It is Tiger Woods. Yes. I tried to fool you by putting. <laughs> you guys Tiger, would think that's the obvious answer. That was the first. Well, I was waiting I for his he, name. <laughs> he played here. I actually yeah. don't remember that. Oh, that's yeah. what surprised me. That, I, I, I forgot he came north. I, I did. Yep. He has, that, a, he has a very famous seventeenth uh, hole shot yes. out of the bunker, right, Gord on the yes. on the seventeenth at Glen Abbey. I remember that because they had the overhead of it and cleared the water and trees, and mm, it was okay. amazing. Beautiful Good Glen Abbey in picturesque us. Oakville, Ontario. And I've never... <laughs> <laughs> I apologize to all that, Oakvillians. That's that going to be condos, isn't it? That course? Yes. That's that's the conversation oh, that's, uh, that's, that's there. Right, yeah. That's what we need. In lovely, yeah, yeah. in lovely Hamilton. <laughs> um, I like Hamilton. I always defend Hamilton. Don't let Dave Woodard hear that. Until right now. Until right, right now. now. Yeah. yeah right. Third question. St. George's Golf and Country Club, where the tournament is this weekend at the RBC Open, used to be called this. The Islington Royal Golf Club. The Royal York Golf Club. Bushwood Country Club. Say that one. And St. Buckingham's Golf and Country Club. Dave. I'm going to go with the first one. Yeah. The Islington. Islington Royal Golf yeah. Club. Gord? What was the second one? Royal York Golf Club. I'm going to go with that one. It's Okay. And Jason? Yeah, I like Islington. It's the Royal York oh. Golf Club. Oh, oh Gord for the win. It's definitely not Bushwood. I, I know where that it's is. It's not Bushwood. Yeah, <laughs> Judge Smales <laughs> is involved. <laughs> and a gopher. Bushwood. Kill all the gophers on the course. <laughs> right. uh, pardon me, but if I kill all the gophers, who will pay with the green fees? Whatever. Um, yeah, and, and that's nowhere near the Royal York Hotel, so it doesn't make any yeah. sense to me. No. Yeah, well, that's you know that's just part of the country for you. Um, and the last question. J. Douglas Edgar won the first ever Canadian Open. I really hope Jim Nance mentions that over the weekend. In 1919. What a great way to celebrate the end of the Great War. Right. Is the first 1919 Canadian Open. He won how much money? J. Douglas Edgar won $50, Gord, $200, or $500 in 1919. What was the top prize money? $200. Uh, Jason? 50 bones. 
Dave? Oh, I'm going to say they gave him a giant oversized check of $500. It's $200. <laughs> <laughs> On a giant oversized check? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know if they did that back in the 19s. They should have. Yeah. would have been, yeah, blow the budget on the The roaring check. 20s, that, that when people were celebrating the end of the war yeah. and, you know, uh, everything being so fun, they, they should have started coming up with those checks. Uh, like the Ed McMahon style, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, the winner this time around will get $1,566,000, a far oh, cry from the $200 that the esteemed James Douglas Edgar won beating Bobby Jones, and I don't know who oh, he beat. beat Bobby I, Jones. I don't know. It's and Bagger Vance. <laughs> Bagger Vance. I only play <laughs> That's in the a Saudi golf character. league. With two only clubs. Saudi golf league. Yeah. That's true. Very yeah. true. The Canadian men's national team going on strike, and they did that yesterday. Now, there's labor disputes in sports all the time. I mean, we've seen the NHL be off. We've seen Major League at the start of this year, Major League Baseball. It you, you can almost forget someone mentioned that to me Saturday. You're like, well, they've got all these compressed games in Major League Baseball, and I'm like, oh yeah, like of course they're going to get 162 games in, but just barely, and a lot of that is going to compress the schedule later in the fall. But you don't usually see this, and I want to go into some of the parameters of how this ended up happening, and a little critique for the players. Because oftentimes I think we take the players over the owners. We'll take the millionaires over the billionaires. Well, that's different because this isn't a professional sports labor dispute. This is a national team labor dispute. The U.S. women have been fighting for equal pay, equal rights, equal travel conditions because they've been as big a deal, maybe a bigger deal, to be honest, the last five or six years as the, as the U.S. men have. The U.S. men failed to make the last World Cup. The U.S. women perpetually win the World Cup, and their players are better known, to be honest, to, to 365 million Americans. So that means something. You can make the case, given Canada's women, that until Alfonso Davies came on the scene, Christine Sinclair, for maybe a decade, maybe more than that, was our best known soccer player, male or female. But why did the team refuse to play yesterday? Well, those are important issues, and we'll get to those. But to let you know the basics, the meat and potatoes, they're supposed to play Panama. Why are they playing Panama? Because they couldn't play Iran. Yeah, you remember that controversy a couple weeks ago. Let's schedule a friendly against Iran. What could go wrong? Who would have a problem with that? Well, it turns out a lot of people did. Politicians did. People like you and I did. The players actually did. Because the wounds are still pretty fresh, and that's putting it mildly, from Iranian uh, government forces shooting down a Ukrainian jet airliner that had a ton of Canadians on it. And that happened in January of 2020. There were two big news stories, by the way, before COVID that just sort of, I hate saying it, we kind of dropped quickly because of a global pandemic. One was obviously the rail blockades um, by First Nations and Indigenous protesters. That just kind of stopped. We didn't know how that was going to get resolved. And yes, the Iranian plane uh, issue with Canada and finding out, getting justice, getting compensation with basically a, uh, a foreign entity that is hostile towards us and towards most of the Western world. So um, that was a huge mistake from the get go. So Panama stepped in and replaced Iran, which was a dumb thing for Canada soccer to do anyway. But the players released a, yetter, a letter yesterday accusing Canada soccer of, quote, disrespecting the team in relation to negotiations around a bunch of issues. World Cup prize money. They also barracked for the women and said the women need their own domestic league. The men also want a more equitable pay, pay structure 
that sees them get a higher percentage of World Cup prize money. Bottom lining it, they signed a 10-year contract with a group and they don't know where the money is. Like when you'd see a letter and it's like and you see the sentence where's the money? That's a really big issue. Now, here's some of the reaction in BC this match was supposed to take place. I think it'd be an even bigger story obviously in Toronto today had uh, and on Toronto today had uh had this match been at BMO Field yesterday cuz this doesn't happen terribly often. 90 minutes notice, you had people fly in, drive in, book hotel rooms, plan weekends around this game and it didn't end up happening specifically because the players decided to, quote, go on strike. Here's some of the reaction outside the stadium, outside BC Place. Well, I think it's a joke. It's a waste, a waste of all these people's time. We got up early this morning and drove to Nanaimo from Port Alberni, took the ferry over here. Now we'll take the ferry back. So it's a whole day of travel to uh, see nothing. So here's what Canada soccer has done. And again, all of this is happening at what should be a watershed time, a brilliant, brilliant era. And and it's going to continue for a while because of the age of some of the players. And I know my soccer, they didn't fluke their way to the 22 World Cup. They're as good as Mexico is now. They're as good as the United States is. They're not doing that pulling rabbits out of hats. So that part matters. The men have been, you know, kicked over and over again for their results, for falling short, for not being able to be relied on to do this. And they haven't been to a World Cup since 1986. So um, when I hear that audio, I think one thing about this specifically, here's what, what I'd say. You do get leverage sometimes in life. You may get personal leverage of a sort. You may get professional leverage of a sort. And when you get it, you better use it. So I don't mind that the Canadian men are using it to make a better place for themselves. I don't mind that one bit. What I would have preferred they do is Wednesday, Thursday, send out a release and say, we're having some struggles here with our federation. We're having some struggles with, in essence, our bosses. We want to play on Sunday, but here are the things that need to happen for that to take place. Then you get it out in the public eye. Like, like to me, I think they got poorly advised here by uh, just because I don't think the tide would have turned and people would have been against the players. You would have been more respectful of the players saying, we're giving you 72 hours of notice. We're giving you a little bit of a warning shot to let you know that we may not play in this game. And then then you can get motivating the other side to to go into a negotiation. Look, if I'm in some kind of terrible scenario on the air here, and I never expect to be, and I never have, and I never would not show up for a shift and not even try and give my all during during a shift or a show or whatever. Um, But if I had some kind of major, major issue, I think I'd give notice and say I might not come in Monday morning. Now, ultimatums are never, ever good things. I don't like receiving them, and I don't like giving them any more than I like receiving them. If anything, you feel worse because the one you can control and the one you can't. Refusing to play doesn't, to me, set the men off in a tremendous public light here. Nick Bontis is the head of Canada Soccer, and he reacted in kind to this protest and this Wildcat strike yesterday. We would like to have a facts-based discussion within the fiscal reality that Canada Soccer has to live with every day. Canada Soccer is committed to the principles of fairness and equity, and we believe we presented a fair offer to the players. We benchmarked our offer against other national teams from around the world. On the issue of gender equity raised in the player's letter, Canada Soccer's offer also committed to provide the exact same terms to our women's national team. Canada Soccer's strategic commitment is to support all of our programs 
from grassroots right through to the elite first teams. Bottom line, it's an incredibly embarrassing moment. That's Nick Bontis from Canada's soccer. They have to do a better job. It's on both sides not to let it get to the point where it's an international news story, not to let it get to the point where it's embarrassing. Done reflect well on our country, the athletes, the organization. No one wins, everyone loses. Nobody wins in this scenario now, and it really doesn't matter if they work this out in the process here. No athlete wants to be perceived as greedy. No organization wants to be perceived as not respecting the athletes that do the work, that do the lifting, that have have raised the profile, sold all the merchandise, sold all the tickets. I know what I paid to go see Canada, Jamaica in late March. It's a lot more than I paid to go see Canada play El Salvador last, last fall and sit in the same general area. It might be double, to be perfectly honest. So they're raking in money somewhere. And the players have every right to ask where the money is. And the men, by the way, have every right to ask for the same percentage that women get at the World Cup based on the results. It's more money. That's just how it is. But it's the same piece of the pie. The pie is just quantifiably larger. I'm eager to see where this goes today. But I don't think the men and the players did themselves any favors by doing this yesterday. Okay? And uh, it's one thing, right? You, you might want to go to a concert and, and the singer's got a sore throat, so they have to cancel. Or there were travel issues or there was some kind of illness. That's not what this is. That's not what this is. And sometimes I know this happens. Players might admit in an autobiography a little later on that, ah, yeah, I kind of kind of loafed it that day, right? There's a big controversy about Scottie Pippen and the migraine and not wanting to go back into the game uh, when he wasn't going to get to take the shot. That's also not what this is. This, that's not what this is. And I think the athletes could have made a better decision here, and yet I'm on their side. You deserve answers to these questions. But there was a way to go about it that wasn't stiffing fans showing up to see you yesterday. It's a year ago today since a hate-motivated attack uh, devastated people living in the city of London. A 46-year-old man, his 44-year-old wife, their 15-year-old daughter, and her 74-year-old grandmother all died after police said they were deliberately hit by a truck during an evening walk. Ali Islam was a relative of those four people, let alone the family's nine-year-old boy who was hurt but survived and is still recovering. He's 10 now. Um, It's one of the most awful things that's happened in our country and certainly in the last year ever. Ali Islam paid tribute to his family members at the funeral a year ago at this time. Four fountains of sweetness were taken away. Three generations taken too soon. The loss to our family, immense. And uh, Justin Trudeau in uh, London yesterday, many of the leaders, um, provincial leaders, Doug Ford, Andrea Horvath, all went to London a year ago for the service. Um, This hits me really hard. I know so many people in London. I spent the first quarter century of my life there, basically, going to university, uh, going to journalism school afterwards. And I know exactly where this awful incident took place. And um, I remember riding my bike about a week later, two weeks later, maybe on like a like a Saturday evening around six o'clock, definitely after dinner. I think my wife had traveled back to London uh, to see uh, her dad, my father-in-law. And I remember riding a bike, you know, kind of meandering. I'm not the best bike rider, so I'm a little reckless to begin with. And uh, I remember this family was out for a walk and they jumped like they jumped out of the way of me. And I'm on a bike. I'm on a bike, and I thought to myself, this is related to that, and it's something I never have to worry about, and I never forget those kind of things. I never forget that I don't want to scare anybody. I don't want to walk too closely behind somebody. I don't want to drive too fast leading up to an intersection. I'm really conscious 
of that stuff. And maybe I think we're all a little more so since then. Jugmeet Singh made that same point in the House of Commons. This was a highly emotional speech talking about Canada, who we are, what we need to do and what we need to sort of reckon with when we look in the mirror. People are talking to their families and saying, you know what, maybe you shouldn't go for a walk. There are people literally thinking about whether they should walk out their front door in our country. We think about what that means. Some people have said, this is not our Canada. And I think about what that means when people say, this is not our Canada. This happened in London, Ontario. I lived in London, Ontario for five years. I loved my time there. I think about the fact that my parents chose to be Canada, our home. I love my home. I love this place. But the reality is, this is our Canada. This is our Canada. Yeah, that's how I feel. Take responsibility for the things that we do. You take responsibility for what you say, what you feel, and your actions at the end of the day. Accountability is a massive, massive thing. And we have to have these hard conversations about who we are and what we want to be. Nawaz Tahir is a London-based lawyer and chair of Hikmah Public Affairs Council, an advocacy group for London and area uh, Muslims, and he's t- kind enough to take some time to join me now. Nawaz, thank you very much for the time on, on a difficult day, and thanks for making time for our audience today. Oh, good morning, Greg. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I really appreciate it. Uh, yesterday, obviously, a memorial service, and I, you know, a year flies by. We've all been through so much, but I, I, I thought about that yesterday. I watched a lot of the reaction in London, and uh, it is, this isn't the kind of tragedy that you hear, you heal from in 365 days, is it? No, it's not. It's, it's, a, it's a deep wound. It's going to take some time uh, for that wound uh, to heal uh, just because of the, the, unfathomable amount of hate that went into it is behind it and the fact that especially during the pandemic just going out for a family walk was so much a part of of what we were doing in our summers and so those two factors colliding really make it a a a deep scar that will take some time to heal when Jugmeet Singh says what he said and he said that about three weeks after um the tragedy last year how does that how does that land with you how did it land then and is he as right today given some of what we've seen in our country in the last year is he as right today as he is as he ever was about saying that I think you know he's 100 right and and you you nailed it as well we, we've got to take ownership for the fact that there is a small segment of our society that that traffics in hate uh, and is motivated to to conduct these kinds of acts of hate and uh, speak out against and to take actions against visible minorities. So uh, one of the ways that we solve the problem is to acknowledge that the problem exists. Yeah, I, I when I think about where we're at, I, I always make this case. Uh, my producer, Sheba, and I talk about this a fair bit. She's Muslim. And I say, there's a lot more people that, that I'd like to consider like me. There's a lot more people who are uh, who are who have evolved their opinions and their feelings about, you know, demographics and and race and where we all fit in and, and people that, that want a level playing field for everybody. The problem is, is that those that are emboldened, those that don't share those those, you know, philosophies, they feel a little more emboldened to act out, to say things. The online community, the anonymity of it allows them to be more vocal. And I, um, it, it's tough because it's easy to say, well, there's a lot more hate in the world right now. I'm not sure there is, but those that feel that way, Nawaz, are very activated and very, you know, I'll use the word, radicalized by it. Right. I, I fully agree with you. I think it's not a sense that there's more hate in the world. I think just there's more paths to traffic and hate, uh, particularly online. 
And I think particularly during the pandemic, uh, we've seen when you're you're at home, you, you can't be out as much. What do you do? You may be online more. Uh, and there's more opportunities to go down those rabbit holes that to take you to a dark place. So I think it, what it means for us is, as a society, we have to change some of the ways that we uh, attack hate, uh, the way we look at countering hate and dismantling hate, uh, particularly uh, online hate. I often look at the government, and I think, and I think I talked to Jagmeet Singh about this a few weeks after his comments that we just played, and I said. This feels like something that gets fixed in the inside. It gets fixed in households. It gets fixed in communities. It, it, it makes for a more inclusive environment in our schools, in our neighborhoods. I don't know that. I don't know how government legislates um, ending Islamophobia or ends up legislating, um, you know, a, an end to racism. Am I am I off track? Does this not have to get fixed more at a micro level than a macro level? I think the two sort of work hand in hand. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I'll give you an example. Federally, uh, we still, one year later, don't have a defined hate crime uh, in Canada's criminal code. Uh, and so I think you're right that a, a lot of this, that the long path is that it has to be fixed at a micro level. But I think there are some things we can do at the macro level, like changing Canada's criminal code, making changes to the education system and the curriculum to make sure that the curriculum reflects the fact that people of all faiths and backgrounds have contributed to the state of humanity as it exists today. So I think the two solutions work work hand in hand. Uh, and and the long-term solution will only come about because these discussions are happening in people's homes. Nawaz Tahir is joining us from London, Ontario. Those initial weeks and months that led to, I mean, we're June 6, 2021, talking about, and the rest of the summer, I can imagine, people just walking on eggshells, nobody knowing, you know, what felt right. And, and you know, Singh's comment is, is right on the money in that it made people afraid that there'd either be a copycat crime or that people would would look and say, you know, um, you know, it, it, it just felt like there could be more division could be created out of a tragedy. What was it like in London in those initial weeks and months, Nawaz? Oh, well, I think sort of to understand that, we have to sort of take a step back uh, to, to Quebec City as well. Uh, I mean, that really uh, was a huge hit to the security of our community uh, and made us wonder whether or not we'd be safe uh, in our mosques. Mm-hmm. And then what this did is that just took it to the next level uh, because now it wasn't about are we safe in our mosques now it was about are we safe walking on our sidewalks uh, and so e- each successive event like this chips away at that sense of safety and security that our community has so there were definitely uh, people who questioned whether or not they should go out for a walk because they feared whether or not there were more people out there that had similar views uh, that there would be copycat crimes um, and certainly some women uh, rethinking uh, their their own personal decision to wear hijab because of how that uh, that, that singles them out, and, and unfortunately, they they are sisters wear the brunt of uh, of, of these uh, physical acts. Yeah, so awful. Thank you very much for uh, for spending some time with us. This is important. We have to have more conversations like it. Uh, and Nawaz, I thank you for your time this morning. Thank you so much, Greg. I appreciate it. Have a wonderful day. Nawazda here is a London lawyer, chair of Hikmah Public Affairs Council, an advocacy group for London and area Muslims. I wanted to update you as well uh, that these charges are uh, are still pending. And he's been charged. This person has been charged with four counts of first degree murder, one count of uh, of attempted murder. And we're still 
we're still looking for justice. We're still waiting on this. This shouldn't take as long as it has. People with the Alec Manassian van attack case probably would agree with that principle. But this is it's peculiar how long this takes in our country. And I don't I never get good answers as to why that's the case. Veteran city councilor Joe Mahevic, and he joins us. He's in for uh, Joe Cressy filling this seat vacated. Uh, you're, a, you're a veteran of city council. You've seen a lot in this particular city. Um, let, let me let me go there first. Um, how, how does this manifest itself that you step in for Joe until next uh, municipal election, Joe? Yeah, thank you, Greg. Good morning to you and to all. Um, well, it's it's going to be a very short period. It's only six months, so I don't see myself as doing anything major. I see myself as uh, uh, holding the ship of state. He has a very, very important ward. It's the downtown area, mm-hmm. which includes City Hall down to the waterfront, down to Center Island, and lots of development happening there. And so my role will be basically to keep things steady and organize things so the new councillor that takes uh, takes over in November has uh, things ready, all the reports ready so that they can make some good decisions. Well, if interviews like this happen more frequently and media yubs like myself say, Joe, we need you to run. Can we convince you at all? Because we'd love to break that story in the next five months. <laughs> well, that's not going to happen. I did my stint. 27 <laughs> years is, uh, is enough. I do love this city and I'm at the stage in my life where I like projects rather than taking the whole thing all at once. So I'm not retired, as some people ask me, mm-hmm. but uh, I prefer projects rather than a, a real job. <laughs> oh, I want it. Oh, yes. Well, I prefer radio compared to a real job. Are you kidding me? Um, yeah. I, I want to get to this issue of pet ownership, but I had this conversation. You you opened an interesting Pandora's box. I talked to the, uh, the, the NDP MPP, Jessica Bell, about this, and I said, how do we get the best people applying for politics? If they think they can make more money in the private sector, they keep their anonymity. They're not as scrutinized. There isn't, you know, all the social media BS. Do you worry? You've done this long enough. Do you worry that we can't get the best people anymore? That when you grew up or I grew up, this was something really to aspire to. And it felt like there were more, I don't know, positives than negatives. Do you really worry we're not getting the best people anymore or that that we won't going into the future, Joe? I absolutely do worry that it's it's the salary piece is a, is a part of it. Uh, I think a high school principal makes more than a city councilor, so there's that piece. But more importantly, it's um, we we are in an age of conflict, and I don't know what it, where it's coming from, but the kinds of things that my colleagues on council have been exposed to demonstrations in front of their house, vicious attacks on social media, that's disheartening. And I think if you have a Mm. gentle soul as as frankly most counselors do that's why they're in public service uh then that kind of stuff wears on you and really breaks you down so um yeah i can see why people say uh no thanks less money and all that aggravation and you basically say kiss your family goodbye for a period of time uh who wants that yeah you've just you've you've encapsulated more uh more aggravation less money less anonymity sign me up nobody says that that's not a sentence that comes out of most people's mouths yeah, so you have to be either highly, highly motivated by some desire to change something in society, and that's a good thing, actually. Mm. Uh, or sometimes, frankly, we elect losers. And of course, everyone's losers list is a different list. <laughs> but um, sometimes, yeah, the people who should be applying real good leaders that, that are out there, and of course, we have a lot of them, uh, we have to figure out a way to get them in. Well, I've got a bit of a man crush on this Michael Schellenberger. I'm going to play a clip of him before we go in a few minutes. But I did want to ask you about this, uh, the city of Toronto and rules around pet ownership. And sometimes there's a story and it's great for a TV story, right? You can show lots of lots of footage of little bunnies and guinea pigs running around and out in backyards. But 
But in some neighborhoods, I can see why this is a problem. I can see why we do need limits on who owns pets and the number of these particular pets. So um, the, the city of Toronto wants to crack down on this stuff, uh, Joe, but it, it also factors in that we, we've we already been told for bylaw officers, that was a big explanation as to why it took a while to turn water fountains on and get park washrooms ready is staffing's an issue, budgets are an issue. It's all factoring in municipally right now, isn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. So animal control is, uh, is doing a review of the bylaw. And so it is about the number of cats and the, about the number of um, whether you can feed wild animals, number of rabbits and guinea pigs, whether cats that are submitted to the city or requested by the city to be declawed or by a veterinarian. It's the whole gamut of things. Like the interesting thing is, is here we are in a city, lots of concrete, lots of infrastructure. And sometimes we forget that the animals are still here. There's all kinds of animals in the air, uh, on the land, even under the land. And we have to figure out what's a good relationship with them. How do we do that sustainably? How do we do that in a way that uh, that is uh, is good for animals, but also that allows humans to interact in a healthy way? So for example, uh, there will be the bylaw, the bylaw will be amended to not to not allow people to feed wild animals. And that came after a coyote incident uh, in the in the West End where a child was bitten by a coyote. Stay away from them. Like everybody knows that. That's common sense. Now it's going to be codified in a bylaw. Yeah, it's something as simple as, uh, you know, Jason and I talked about earlier in the show about just leaving food on your porch. Um, well, you might want to do that, but I can guarantee your next door neighbors don't want excess food on your porch because raccoons, possums, you name it, are going to frequent it and uh, frequent that porch and uh, spread out thinking, well, this porch is like this. Maybe the next door one is like it. It, it all has a reverberating effect, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. So my, uh, in I know in my neighborhood, one neighbor loves to feed the pigeons and feels that they are doing a holy task. <laughs> uh, the next door neighbor, though, uh, has a tarp that they put on their car every day for the obvious reasons those <laughs> birds do something right yeah. next door. So it's finding that balance. And I know people don't like rules. They don't like rules, especially uh, these days. But we do have to figure out, like, what's the right thing to do? Like, should we have limits on some of these animals? Like, you know, everyone buys two rabbits. They sometimes don't check the gender. And then within really 28 days, you can get more, more than two rabbits is what you're saying. More yeah. than two rabbits. That's right. So is there a limit? Should there be a limit? And really, we're not looking to impose anything that we, you know, nor two normal thinking people would say, okay, for this particular animal, this is the rule for that particular animal, this is the rule. And let's kind of be, uh, be good about it. Uh, when when we when we, for example, see a coyote and say, you know what, not cool to feed that thing. Joe Mahavik's our guest counselor for Ward 10 Spadina, Fort York. So do we have this issue with bylaw officers where there isn't the money. And if we find the money, it's taken from somewhere else. We went through this uh, talking about, um, you know, drinking in parks. And we're like, well, it it, it can't. The, some of the argument against it beyond the moralistic aspect, which made a lot of people roll their eyes, was the idea that, well, we don't have the officers to patrol. Um, so it, some people might say that's a more important issue than making sure, you know, uh, uh, Florence doesn't have eight guinea pigs in her in her condominium, but at the same time, it it is something. If a neighbor complains, someone has to check it out. Yeah, no, absolutely. And 
you know, Greg, I've, I've been on the city council for 27 years, and I'd say that if there was one theme throughout that 27 years is we can pass all kinds of bylaws, have all kinds of programs, but if you can't afford to implement them, if you can't afford the staff, then that's a problem. Like we, we need to, if there is a top line issue here is reforming city finances, relying on the property tax. We're one of the few, few countries that relies pre predominantly on the property tax to, to fund city services. We need other sources of revenue. We need like mm -hmm. a penny on the, on the HST. And then we can do some of these things, uh, some of these things better. We're too poor, uh, too often. Uh, and so good things, good projects don't get done well. And I got under a minute here, but some of that is obviously I know there's a push from from the mayor and members of city council like yourself. I mean, the downloading of services was a huge thing in the late 90s from the provincial from the Mike Harris provincial government. Can you get more money from provincial and federal means to pay for some of the things the city, the, the city's residents need, Joe? Yeah, the problem is, is that up to now, yes, we got downloaded all these services. Those are annual ongoing costs. The province and the feds, they, they've been pretty good at funding things like hard infrastructure, public transit in particular, uh, and for the federal government housing, they've been pretty good at funding that. But we need programs that guarantee revenue each and every year. That way you can get those bylaw enforcement officers that you need. That way you can get the parks people to clean up stuff that happened in, uh, as the result of people playing in the parks. Uh, you can get the better housing. You can get people to clean mm. up the housing and to fix the housing. All the mm. things that we need to do uh, to make this city better. Yeah, we need to rearrange the finances. And Fed's province, especially the province, give us a little bit of flex on, on that. Give us some revenue that we can we can count on on an annual basis. Hey, Joe, let's I, I know I, let's have another chat in a week or so. I want to talk more about working downtown. The, these are issues that aren't going to get settled in the next uh, in the next couple of weeks. So hopefully you can come on come on uh, middle of the month and, and we'll have another conversation. Anytime, I'm yours. Awesome. Appreciate that. Joe Mahavik, I appreciate it. This, this is what we were waiting for, is this part. Yeah. I just say that because it was a little breezy yesterday on the golf course. I just, there's it, nothing beyond, you know, the hero aspect of it. That's Wind Beneath My Wings by Bed Midler. Uh, Gord Rennie, I'm proud never to have seen beaches. And if I haven't seen it yet, I'm not seeing it anytime soon. <laughs> That window is closed, yeah, man. Yeah, I think I saw it in a hotel room once when we couldn't go out to the beach because it was raining. Oh, that sounds depressing. I, yeah, I, well, I know. When you said we, it's not like, like that's a pretty My, sad oh, occasion if oh. you're in a hotel by yourself and that's the movie you choose. <laughs> So, by the way, I used to work in a uh, record CD shop. I think I've mentioned my experience there before. Right. And sometimes people come in at Christmas and they don't know the song titles, right? So uh, this, old, <laughs> this older woman comes in and she says, I really need that song. Um, uh, uh, do you, what, what did she say? She just said, um, did you know you're my hero? And I don't, I'm not placing it for like a right. good three minutes. I'm like... Is it a female? Is it a male? Like I'm like a cop doing a like a like some kind of. I is it, uh, it? Does it have a guitar in it? Like I'm not even placing it. <laughs> Guy comes out of the back room, like finishes his lunch, comes out, and he goes, "Bed Midler, wind beneath my wings," and I'm like, "Damn it!" I'm an idiot in front of this woman who just wanted that well, one song. Yeah, I'm like, "Here's the Beaches soundtrack for 1899." You, you get a lot of crap on it, and you get this. <laughs> okay, Anthony Farnell is, uh, you know, he knows that he's our hero. And by the way, you're the hero to uh, dogs everywhere. You give them inspiration. You get photos. And I understand you're also uh, you're doing some dog babysitting this weekend. 
Yeah, yeah. I got uh, about two weeks of this. It's the in-laws uh, dog that uh, gets along sort of with my dog, Storm. Who it's doesn't get on with things. Storm? Who could have an issue with Storm? What What are their well, philosophies? Did they vote differently yeah, on Thursday yeah. night? What are we talking about here? <laughs> the behind the scenes <laughs> with Storm is a little different. He, <laughs> when there's food around, uh, this guy does not want to share, so... Uh, separate rooms for dining and then uh, they want different length walks. It, it's, 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 yeah, it's fun. Yeah, that's true. They don't all, yeah, I, I guess dogs can be uh, independently minded. They don't all have to, you know, they're, they're not conformists, these animals. Yeah. And they, and they each give me their separate paw in the face <laughs> to get up in the morning and take them out. And they're <laughs> looking at me now, like, who are you talking to? Why are we not doing what you said we were going to do this morning. Exactly. Let's go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listening to Toronto today was not on the docket. <laughs> you didn't put in that that in the dog day planner the night before. Um, so we got this a, a little bit of a cool pattern, which again, we're not going to go down to like 14, 15 degrees for a high. We're not getting up to the 29s, 30s. That's, uh, you know, relatively seasonal, I suppose, to hit those time those marks a couple times. We got a cool pattern that's going to hit us the next week or so. And we got a lot more rain on the way, you're saying, than I thought I would have said two days ago, three days ago from some of the forecasts. Yeah, it looks like it's coming in here uh, pretty heavy later tonight and then into Tuesday. There's a risk of some thunderstorms as well. And it's uh, those storms that really could contain the heavy rainfall. And uh, there already are special weather statements, mostly well back to the west, closer to Georgian Bay, to Lake Huron. Uh, but it wouldn't surprise me if Environment Canada expands those and, and maybe even upgrades to a rainfall warning because uh, there are some areas that could see 50 to 60, 70 millimeters of rain in, in about a, a 24-hour period. Really fast amount of time. Um, and, and so this is about a three, four-day scenario. Are we into better shape by la- later in the week? Looks a bit better than the next 48 hours or so from, uh, from my view. What, what are you seeing? Yeah, I mean, I mean, even today, uh, we had some rain overnight, rather light stuff, and, and most of the day today is dry, and then it comes back in here tonight. It lasts through the first half of the day on Tuesday. We may get some sun by late late in the uh, afternoon, evening, and then Wednesday's okay, and then, we, yeah, we have those showers coming back, and the weekend could be wet as well. So uh, it's one of those patterns that you mentioned, it uh, average to slightly below mm-hmm. seasonal. The average high is 23 degrees right now, the average low, 12 or 13. So we're not too far from that, but yeah, gone are the uh, 30 degree days and, and that humidity. And you know what? Uh, I saw a lot of people out this weekend. There's Dundas West Fest. There was a lot of things going on in town or around Southwestern Ontario as well. And people weren't complaining. It's okay. Yesterday was 25. That, that was okay. Oh, it was great. Absolutely. It was. Yeah. Ro- ro- you know, roof open at Jay's uh, two, two days in a row. Yeah. Uh, that's big. I know they're on the road for a while now. Now I'm seeing this tropical storm, Alex, and it's bearing down on Bermuda. So forms in the Atlantic and, uh, we could have a lot of forecasters are saying a very active year in the Atlantic for tropical storms leading into hurricanes. And this gets back to global warming discussions, doesn't it? The seventh above average year in a row. That's, that's a pretty notable trend. Uh, it is a notable trend uh, and global warming, climate change, something that that may be contributing. Also, uh, the phase of the Atlantic, the Atlantic and the Pacific are in uh 
they go through warm phases, cool phases. It's it's turning cooler in the Pacific. We're still in a La Nina, we call it. Uh, but in the Atlantic, it has been warm now for a couple of decades straight. So uh, that tends to add more fuel to these storms. And and one of the reasons why they're they're predicting this active year with up to 20 or 21 named storms. And uh, that basically takes us through the alphabet again. And mm-hmm. we've gotten into Greek letters the last couple of years. So uh, it's something we're watching. Alex, uh, the strongest A name that we've seen since the last Alex, uh, which goes on a six-year cycle. So that would bring us back to, to 2016. So we're off to that busy start. Uh, and and yeah, yeah, it looks like it's going to continue. Now you can have a, a naming frenzy, uh, but <laughs> they all stay out at sea and, and nobody really cares. The big question is, do, do these things make landfall? And uh, in the case of Alex, I mean, it brought some rain to Florida, uh, some tropical storm force winds to Bermuda, but it, it's pretty much a, a fish storm out in the Atlantic. It's a little like NHL referees. Like if you don't know their name when you leave the venue, it's a good thing for them. It's it's better not to know than to know. If you're talking about that damn Don Van Massenhoven, then you know he made some bad calls against your team. You know that. Yeah, that, that's that's exactly <laughs> it. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> And uh, more hockey reference. If if you you really also don't want to see uh, their names uh, up on the rafters retired because that that means uh, bad things happen. For, it's a for, lot. For that name. Yes, you you absolutely have that uh, right. All right, he got up early. He got multiple paws in the face from multiple dogs, and he still came <laughs> through for our audience. Anthony, we'll talk Friday uh, heading into uh, the weekend. All right, sounds great. Have awesome. Be watching it tonight. Anthony Farnell will be on Global News at 5.30 and 6 with Farnasser, Alan Carter. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast. We greatly appreciate it. We'll see you tomorrow for a live show between 5.30 and 9 a.m. on the Radio Player Canada app, or you can go to 640toronto.com or on that AM dial at 6.40. Thanks again for listening.